Yeah, so thanks for uh, joining me, Dr. Pardew. Yeah, um, for sure. But one, one thing, let me um, make sure the, the mics are close to your mouth so that yeah, you can like twist it and uh, yep. rotate it. Better? Yeah. Is this good? Uh, can you uh, say one, two, three? One, two, three. 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 That's good. Test one, two, three. So, thanks for uh, joining me today. Um, I was wanting to talk to you for a long time because um, during our machine design class, you talk a lot about um, your experiences when going in through your um, uh, work with NASA and yeah. also um, your work as a professor of mechanical engineering at Tennessee Tech. Absolutely, so, um, yep. Yeah, so can you go a little into uh, um, your experience starting with um, uh you're an undergraduate and sure happy to so I actually came to Tennessee Tech for my undergraduate and I chose Tennessee Tech because primarily because of the co-op program I knew they were a great engineering school but I had looked at other engineering schools throughout the southeast and when I was deciding in high school where I wanted to go it just made sense to choose Tennessee Tech Um, I really wanted to major in aerospace engineering but we don't have that as a degree option still don't But I remember talking with, in retrospect, I remember now who it was I met with, but when I was a prospective student, I asked, do you all have aerospace? And he was like, no, we don't, but mechanical engineering, by and large, is very much the same as aerospace. And um, that was Dr. Griggs, I come to find out later. So Dr. Ed Griggs, who I ended up getting to know very well during my undergraduate and graduate school. But yeah, so I came to Tennessee Tech and actually co-opt for a year with NASA down in Huntsville, Marshall Space Flight Center, and enjoyed it immensely. It was the year that, unfortunately, that NASA was grounded because it was right after the Challenger accident. Um, In fact, I remember sitting in an office. um, I was a student worker for one of the professors over in basic engineering, and I remember hearing on the radio when the accident happened. And um, that was in 1986, and then the year that I co-opted was in 1987. But I was there from January through December and loved it. Realized that um, all the engineers that I worked with at that uh, facility, the folks who did the really interesting jobs, all had graduate degrees. So that's when I first started thinking, Mm -hmm. well, maybe I needed to get a graduate degree in engineering. So I came back to tech, finished my undergraduate, and as often happens... You kind of end up, um, if you keep your eyes wide open and you're always talking to people about what's going on, you you get invited to kind of participate in interesting projects. Mm -hmm. And so I had started um, paying attention to one of the professors um, that I took some courses with. It was aerodynamics, and his name was uh, Sastri Munakutla. And Dr. Munakutla was talking to me about the kind of research that he does. And again, as a graduate student, I thought, well, I'd like to do something that would be um, meaningful that maybe I could go back and work for NASA with. And he and I ended up, I worked with him for my master's degree, and that was on a project that was experimental flow analysis looking to reduce turbulence. And Mm. so I got to learn how to use hot wire anemometer, um, do a lot of uh, uh, advanced signal processing, so as a graduate student, I ended up taking uh, some double E courses in signal processing, and um, it, was, it was fascinating, opened up a whole new world, and I really enjoyed that. I, I uh, learned that I liked experimental work, 
I liked being in the laboratory. I liked figuring out how equipment works. I liked the detective work that you have to do when it doesn't work the way you think it, mm. it should. And you do some troubleshooting. And that project um, that I did with him was actually an industry-sponsored job. Um, it oh. was uh, working with uh, Tennessee Eastman on a really interesting application. to, And they actually implemented some of our solutions to reduce the turbulence in their industry uh, manufacturing of a product. And that was pretty exciting to kind of get to see your work go into, um, into work and to, to kind of help improve a system. Mm-hmm. When, um, and just cut me off, I'm going to be on a roll. So if you want to kind of uh, step in and ask any more questions, yeah. but I'm just kind of giving you a little timeline. Um, yeah, it must have been uh, challenging for, for right after... Um the uh, Challenger uh, accident yeah. coming right into a, a yeah. co-op position. What, um, what was the overall mood at uh, Huntsville? Well, you could really tell that a lot of people were, by the time I got there, right, you know, the the immediate um, tragedy of the moment was had been that, that kind of grief and that kind of uh, strong emotional response, I'm sure, by all the people working in that environment had had, had a chance to kind of um, not diminish, but people had gotten okay with it right they they processed everything they had processed it right so me coming in as a co-op student um the what the implication of nasa being grounded at the moment meant that the urgency of a lot of the timelines that would have normally been there on projects um to make sure that all the benchmarks were being met for the next flight for the next flight because all of that had been on put on hold it was kind of interesting because it allowed, I think, the engineers in some ways to uh, dig into some issues. You know, mm-hmm. so like the project, I worked on a couple of different projects when I was on co-op because I was there for a full 12 months. Half of the year I worked in what's called the systems laboratory, which um, the systems lab at NASA would, um, it, when they, they, the way they name everything, everything is a laboratory so or mm-hmm. a division. And so the systems lab folks, they did all of the integration much in the way of almost like you'd think about industrial engineering, they were responsible for kind of scheduling all the different kinds of tests that mm. would have to be conducted to make sure that everything was passing um, the expectations. And if they didn't pass the expectations, then you know they would reschedule. And that meant folks in systems lab dealt with all of the either vendors from where they were getting equipment or they also dealt with the contractors who were conducting yep. a lot of the work. So it was... In some ways, it was great because I kind of got to see the big view of how a project went from uh, just an idea on paper all the way through to five years later being a flight mm-hmm. um, situation. And then when I was with them, though, I, I kept meeting people that were in a different laboratory, and it was the test laboratory. And and so I basically talked my way into getting into the test laboratory oh, nice. for the yeah for the last six months. And that was fascinating to me. I got to work with engineers who had been a part of the, um, you know, they had they were reaching retirement age, but they had been at NASA when a lot of the Saturn V rocket testing mm. was being done in Huntsville. And it was just wonderful to kind of talk with them about their experience and all the ways that technology had changed, all the ways that, you know, the stories that they had about uh, their work with, um, I got to meet astronauts oh, when wow. I was in testing lab. I actually got to test a, a piece of equipment that an astronaut was going to use while on um, the shuttle to conduct some tests. And so even though it was a delayed schedule of flight, they still wanted to make sure that everything was ready. So it was actually a, a camera that was being used to 
uh, track at a very specific timing a mm. physical process and they had had issues with this particular camera being reliable in prior flight. Yeah. So I got to kind of work with the engineers to design a, a test protocol to verify that this camera would work. And then was it a physical camera with like a shutter? Yeah, it really was. So what, yeah. what, there was like it was a pressure and atmosphere mm -hmm. affecting the, uh, yep. the rate that, yep. Yep. Yeah. And, and I think they were concerned about, um, although they control for moisture and things like that, you know, it's, because of the temperature differentials that can be experienced when in um, uh, orbit, mm -hmm. um, even when inside, you know, there's going to be a little bit more variation than necessarily what we're used to, perhaps in a building on Earth. Um, so there were there was a lot of different kind of environmental factors to keep in mind. So that was that I think that um, really kind of opened my eyes towards all the cool things that could you'd have to figure out if you're going to be um, working in a test laboratory because you're not you're not just responsible for understanding the physics of the actual experiment that's being run you're also responsible for understanding the data acquisition plan mm -hmm. um, how you're going to analyze the data um, how you're going to you know verify that the data that you have is um, you know what what kind of uncertainty you have on it so I think I think all of that kind of brought me back to Tennessee Tech with a way different understanding of what engineering could be mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's always interesting how you can go through the theory of this is what the temperature should be at mm -hmm. a specific height. And then you, how, how did they uh, acquire the, the temperature data as they you know go through um, each uh, layer of the atmosphere and then oh, into the orbit? Oh, yeah. So that I'm assuming is, is because the projects I were, was working on were all once it was you know, in orbit. Okay. Um, what, is that the, in the stratosphere or yeah. the troposphere? Uh, you're asking me a question I do not know the answer to. So, well, you know, I have a book. We, I'm sure we could pull off yeah. a shelf that we yeah. could find, you know, which which layer of the atmosphere the or how high that shuttle uh, orbital projectory was. Okay. And this, this predated International Space Station. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. Um, wow. So the... You know, the, the, when you start to kind of stack up the kinds of things that you do that, that help you figure out what do you really want to do, mm -hmm. right? You know, because when you're getting an undergraduate degree, you maybe have an idea of what that dream job looks like. Yeah. But, you know, everything that I was doing up to that point, you know, undergraduate and then going ahead and starting my master's degree was with the idea that I would eventually go work for NASA. Mm -hmm. I don't work for NASA. So, you know, you might ask, well, what happened? Um, so what happened was I, I met a really cool guy, uh, Dr. Andy Pardue. He and I got married actually right after uh, undergraduate. So we both did our master's work at the same time. And he was doing computational fluid dynamics and I was doing experimental fluid dynamics. Mm -hmm. And we kind of scratched our heads together because this is what you start making decisions, not just for yourself, but for the people in your life. Um, we asked ourselves, could we actually ever expect to get jobs in the same city, in the same market as engineers without mm -hmm. competing with each other if we were both in the world of fluids? So he was doing computational, I was doing experimental, and so we thought, that'll be okay. But I think what when we both got done with our master's, we realized we really like doing research. And so we decided to do our PhD studies, and he ended up getting funding from NASA to do his, and I ended up saying, well, I don't want to be in direct competition with this guy that I love um, for a job someday. And I'm, I'm concerned that we're not going to both be able to get engineering jobs in the same speciality. 
So I actually um, stepped back and started talking with some of the other faculty here at the university and in mechanical engineering, one guy in particular that I had a fascination with. Um, I had had some courses with him, and I just thought he was a really great professor, and that was Dr. Richard Houghton. And he was a very creative individual. He would take on um, really challenging projects and figure it out. His work was all experimental. It was typically based on vibration diagnostics. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the mathematics that I had learned to do the turbulence modeling and the turbulence uh, data acquisition for my master's degree, I ended up talking with him and I said, is there something that we could do that I could become a part of your team, your research team, bring those skills and we study it together? And he said that something that he'd been doing for a long time that he kind of wanted to go back to is to use vibration diagnostics to understand the health of a structure. Uh, mm. and, and he told me this story, and then I kind of went away and thought about it, and I thought, that's what I want to do. He told me this story about bridges and the fact that foundations on bridges are supported by, in some cases, concrete columns, some cases, timber, really? um, wood foundations and that he had been contacted about 10 years prior to do a study to see if he could help diagnose how long a pile was at that point in time they didn't have the same kinds of computer speed that we had um, when i was a became a graduate student so a lot of the resources had changed and he said why don't we look at that problem again and that's what i ended up doing we got funding from the tennessee department of transportation and i ended up working on a project that total lasted about five years. Um, I got my PhD and then I actually became a research and development engineer for the university to kind of finish the project out. Oh, nice. And what I did was I brought the mathematical and the experimental understanding that I had from my master's work and put it to work in this completely new application. But that to me is really kind of what engineering is about. It's about learning something, observing a new problem, trying to figure out, can I do something to create some value, add some um, clarity around that new space. Mm -hmm. And it was just really neat because as a part of that process with him, I got to write the proposal with him for funding. I got to meet with the engineers at the Department of Transportation. I ended up going to some meetings in Washington, D.C. for the Federal Transportation Board. And it was just, um, it was fascinating. And mm -hmm. um, it kind of opened my eyes to how long a project can sometimes take to go from start to finish. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, you talk about, you know, like government organizations and even NASA, how much more regulated and slow, Yeah. but that's because you have to hit all the, the checks before you, you do. commit compared to like some, you know, startup that doesn't, this tries to, you know, output something as fast as they can to, yeah. to beat the competition. It's, yeah. it's two different. It is. Mindsets. It's two different timelines. It's a lot of times it's based on, um, like you said, if, if, if it's competition to market, um, that's going to maybe create some timelines that, you know, cause a lot of stress uh, mm -hmm. working in that environment. But, you know, for the government, um, things will progress at a steady rate because of that, you know, constant review and that constant awareness that you have to be in compliance with all of the regulations that mm -hmm. govern the space that you're working in. So, yeah, um, I think by by the time that I got done with my... Uh, research with the Tennessee Department of Transportation, I realized, because I'd also been able at that time, while being a PhD student, was as, um, actually teaching some courses, and I kind of realized how much I liked figuring out 
what does it take to help other people learn and kind of tap their own potential? And so I think that's really kind of what opened my eyes to the whole idea of being an educator for life. Mm. Yeah. Uh, going back, how did um, how did that eventually uh, the, your vibrations research uh, mm-hmm. and end up? Uh, what, what was you, you talk about um, the, the different uh, foundation wood and cement was what yeah. is was was there a way to uh, eventually uh, see if the um, vibrations would correlate to failure over yeah. time? Yeah, there is. Um, in fact, what we what we created was a a standalone uh, set of equipment. It, it was a rack that you know took a little bit of weight to carry around. Uh, we we had a generator that you could put in the back of a pickup truck. We tried generator power. We tried uh, DC power. So I learned a lot of electrical engineering application uh, to try to get the cleanest amount of power available for being in a remote place where you're not going to be able to plug into a wall mm-hmm. uh, to use equipment. And we devised a, a test protocol and a whole set of equipment, and we trained a couple of the um, technicians that were working for the t- uh, Department of Transportation at that time to use this system. So I was responsible for coming up with that training um, process for them. It was a real eye-opener to me that at that time, that was, what year was that? That was probably early 90s, to realize that some folks, you know, what we take for granted as engineers, you know, like using a mouse on a computer, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the guys that I was working with hadn't ever had to use computers. And so I actually, in, in the process of training them, I actually had to teach them how oh, wow. to use the interface as well. And that was, you know, that makes you take makes you take stock of, as engineers, we're also responsible for kind of understanding other people's perspectives, right? So I couldn't mm-hmm. assume that they knew how to do it. I had to kind of take a step back and, and learn how to t- talk with them about what they already knew how to do, and here is what I need you to learn how to do. So we created this system. Uh, the Department of Transportation used it for a while. Uh, what it ended up doing was uh, we had an actuator that you would, and I was working on timber piles. So we, we made a distinction that we would not work on concrete because timber was their most concern mm-hmm. at that time. And um, it's still a concern. There's a lot of the infrastructure in the U.S. that has aged out beyond its design life. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's becoming more and more important to constantly be able to verify the safety of these new uh, or these existing uh, systems with new technology. So at the time, what we were proposing to them, uh, the only competing technology that was out there was to take a hammer, mm-hmm. to thunk the wood and for a person to listen oh wow okay so the trained ear which i mean the ear and the human we are very sensitive sensors Mm -hmm. and you know so i'm not saying that it's not a viable technology but that was the technology we were competing with is for someone to walk up to a wooden pile could be 20 feet exposed length and maybe another 20 feet you know going through water and dirt and they would thunk it listen and if it sounded good it was Mm -hmm. good you know, and if it had a, a different resonance, then they might say, we're going to flag that one for concern. We'll check it a year from now when we do our, our walkthroughs. And we're talking thousands of bridges just mm. in the state of Tennessee alone. So what we were trying to do was to automate it and to say, could we, instead of relying on the human ear, could we put some instrumentation on an actuator uh, and then some accelerometers and then put a known signal in and then watch how it um, was picked up by those accelerometers. So that's what we did. And then we, we ran through a bunch of different options. Uh, we looked at using impulse function, kind of a single transient test. 
And then what I was proposing to make it more robust was to use what's called random vibration. So you actually turn an actuator on and it, in essence, it almost sounded like, you know, I, I wish I had an audio file for you to, to, <laughs> to insert here, but walking up to a piece of timber, which might be anywhere from 14 to 18 inches in diameter. And we're talking putting, a, we have to drill a bolt into the side of the wood so that it kind of penetrates into a certain depth of the wood. Then we put an actuator on that actuator was a magneto restrictive actuator. So it, um, it took a, a high current uh, signal and turned it into a, a, some motion through the, the behavior of the material. And that would put in typically about a pound, not very much load, but a pound of force into this big, long timber. Mm-hmm. And when you listen to it, it almost sounded like water running through a pipe. It was kind of like a hissing mm-hmm. sound, kind of like and And it was actually a, a, a frequency content of signal that would go from around 200 hertz all the way out to about 4,000 hertz. And what we were doing was by exciting a band of frequency, what we were looking for was the um, spikes in the frequency response on mm-hmm. the accelerometers. Because if you think about a timber, long, long timber structure, single pile um, is what they're referred to as a pile, um, it acts kind of like a wind chime. Mm, yeah. So, you know, the longer it is, the lower the frequency you're going to hear as a fundamental. Yeah. yeah. And um, that's what we were going for. And we actually ended up looking at the spacing between the natural frequencies because you'll have a fundamental frequency but then there would be harmonics that would be above that yeah. and so we were taking use of that full frequency band to to look for the spacing so that we could do some averaging and then yeah. what you start to look for then if that if it's a young piece of wood in terms of you know maybe the bridge was built a year ago we actually even had test piles driven driven here on campus that we wow. could just write so we didn't always have to go out to a real bridge yeah and we learned a lot just by doing all those test piles um, because what we were having to account for was a, a bridge being built in a swampy area of land out somewhere in, in West Tennessee could be going through, you know, 10 to 15 feet of water, a section of mud, and then finally get into the, the actual soil that it's been driven into. And all of those will affect, they'll, they'll act as dampeners. Yeah on the frequency so i mean it it just it 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 really became one of those problems that it still is not solved um it is one i actually think about sometimes you know getting back into because at the end of the day what the tennessee department transportation was hoping for was a technique that was repeatable enough reliable enough simple enough to use that their technicians could go out and do it Mm -hmm. and what we did as a prototype developing for them it was reliable it wasn't simple Mm, yeah right so the high high degree of training right yeah you know i was watching you set up your system here you know it took you 15 or 20 minutes when we were going out in the field you can imagine if you if you didn't have access to a pile from the shoreline you might have to be out in a boat yeah right or you might have to be we actually had sometimes where we had a cherry picker kind of out on the middle of the bridge (laughs) coming in from underneath to do the instrumentation my dream and and what I'd love to maybe get back into or I hope somebody eventually explores if it's not me is instead of having to put an actuator in if you could just use the ambient excitation like a truck driving over the bridge mm, yeah 
you know, and then learn how to do the diagnostics based on that kind of input, I think would be really cool. So you could simplify it a little bit. You could modern instrumentation accelerometers, you could actually maybe put accelerometers that would stay, right? Mm -hmm. Like the accelerometers we have in our phone, you could just kind of mount them and then you could watch a bridge um, over time. Yeah, yeah, that'd be a more useful information mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. just a single uh, study. Yep. Yeah, that's probably something that will be need, needed in the future because of all the, uh, like you said, the uh, it's already past its the life. And if yeah. You, even if you design for a factor of safety, yep. you know, it's with the, the the weight of cars and the amount of traffic. I don't know if they accounted for that. And well, what they do is, and this was again, this there's so much that you learn that you never expect to learn. Um, mm-hmm. I I discovered that. When a bridge is designed and it's built, the county where it gets built takes responsibility for the construction. Really? So in partnership with, and this may have been historically, I don't know if it's currently this way, but historically it would be local con- contractors you know, doing the construction. And so the design may have called out for um, 40-foot piles being driven in the ground. Well, you don't really know if... 40 feet were actually driven because they could Hmm. they could actually have maybe hit an obstacle at 35 and then cut it off and so the 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 calculations that were done by the engineers on the design side may or may not have been met during construction and then 10 20 40 years later when you're doing testing on it you're trying to figure out how long it really was because maybe the construction records weren't kept um is there any damage in the wood? Because that'll change the vibration signature. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's a, a very interesting problem, and I mm-hmm. think one that uh, engineers should really kind of grab a hold of those what I call sticky problems, the things that are not easily solved. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah, that kind of sets the stage, I think, for a lot of the other subsequent work that I've done. Um, so I've done some really great projects throughout my uh, teaching career that have been different kinds of using but but it's always come down to it's usually experimental work it's usually having something to do with vibrations um and it's usually something to do with uh detecting a situation and how that situation is changing mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's definitely um interesting how research coincides with your teaching and you can um really find this like you said the uh the avenues that connect everything in your uh, total research yeah like, um yeah i was wondering um like Sticking with like infrastructure, what uh, what do you think about um, dealing with the aging infrastructure in this country and overall the um, yeah the lack of uh, like what what would be some uh, areas that we should be more concerned about? Like we just had the uh, the Ohio uh, train derailings, right? Right. Like so I mean, you know, looking at um, the use of right, so the the transportation side of the infrastructure. I think there's there's a constant need to ensure that we are following protocols that have been established, right? You know that in the in the instance when instrumentation or our measurement process could provide more data to alleviate, um, I think what they found out with one of the situations is that you know it was an overheated bearing, and mm. could they have detected that overheated bearing before? And in fact, it turns out that you can use vibration diagnostics to discover the health of a bearing, and it will give you much better um, indication about um, remaining life than by the time it's getting too hot, it's too late. So I think mm. I think we as engineers have a constant responsibility to revisit what is the current practice, 
And are there opportunities, you know, to uh, improve that practice? And so could we do more sensors? Could we, instead of reading every 10 miles and getting sensor data back from the, uh, an operation of a system, could we do it because of cost and perhaps less expensive data acquisition nowadays? Could you do it every five miles? Could that give you more indication? So ways that we as engineers, I think constantly we have to understand what is the, what is the current practice and then ask ourselves, what are the strengths of that current practice? What are the weaknesses? What are the opportunities and what are the threats? So it's just like in business when you do what's called a SWOT analysis to kind of look at a new situation. We have an opportunity as engineers to constantly be on the alert for, has technology changed? Can we improve what mm -hmm. we're doing? Um, are we training people sufficiently? Yeah. So the people, in, and because people interface with technology, mm -hmm. And technology keeps getting more complex. So is it a situation where more training can help? Um, is it a situation where lots of folks are excited about artificial intelligence and machine mm -hmm. learning? And that's not an area of research that I know as much about. I read about it casually. But, you know, what can we learn by um, accessing more data and really thinking of our way through that data? That's what the machine learning helps you with. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think you know, as far as the infrastructure goes, it, it's a reality. You know, we built a lot of this in the 1950s and 60s. And here we are, not 50 years later, but 70 years later. Mm -hmm. and, and we really have a responsibility to figure out cost-wise, what can we do to keep the current system that we have in performance? Mm -hmm. What can we do to gradually replace it? Yeah. And, and it's not any one person, any one agency, any one um, single person's responsibility. It's all of us. And mm -hmm. so I think, you know, it's sometimes people say, well, infrastructure, that's all civil engineering, bridges and roads and whatnot. But mm -hmm. mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, we can be a part of the solution. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, I agree. I still remember seeing the pictures of the old new draftsmen like yep. building, like drawing by hand all yep. their their CAD and doing all their calculations, and then we're moving to you know like CFD and mm -hmm. like ANSYS, and now we have like three D printers and mm -hmm. um, like it's like amazing. Yeah, so it's just the technology has just accelerated so fast in the last fifty years. I have no idea how they you know designed all these bridges and like the Hoover Dam like in the thirties or. All these um systematically, you yeah. know, I, I think that's you know the the idea that engineers have always been good about doing things by a process, mm -hmm. right? You know that we can document, that we can track, that we can show evidence for why we made what decisions, mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's one thing that I I learned as I've become you know more and more the years that I've worked as an engineer is to understand that engineering is not a solo activity, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You know, we always do it in a team based environment yeah. and always taking input from other people, checking other people's work, having other people check our work, um, which is kind of reassuring in a way. Cause yeah. I think because we're in it together and we have that ability to rely on one another, I think that that becomes kind of an interesting yeah. reassurance like, that like, like you we're going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. Like, like you said, the, uh, like mechanical engineers all and electrical engineers have a duty with uh, civil engineers to make sure the infrastructure keeps working. Mm -hmm. And one mm -hmm. thing I've have 
I've, I've tra- talked to Dr. Chen about um, some research, and one thing I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about is the if, if we move towards uh, electric cars in the future, right? If, uh, the infrastructure I, and I think it's not it. an if; we are, we are yeah. already doing it. Yeah, right. I, I just hope that the um, that we we catch up to the level of advancement that electric cars have gone to, with our infrastructure uh, with our electrical grid. Because uh, yeah. at this point, it's it seems like there's a lot of um of a lot of hurdles in the last next couple of years uh, because I think we're in a transitory uh, yeah, moment. Yeah, I, I right think now. You, I think you were correct, and I think in retrospect, it would be interesting to kind of look back at where have been some other historical pivots mm-hmm. in technology and how we can learn from if it was navigated well versus not navigated mm-hmm. well. Um, and so I think there's always a place for at least one or two, if not more people in an engineering team to kind of have that historical perspective, you know, mm-hmm. to kind of say, and that to me, again, that kind of gets back to whenever you're conducting that SWOT analysis, you're always constantly asking yourself, what's a strength, weakness, opportunity, and threat, and how can we deal with them, um, to bring that perspective of, did somebody else, because in many ways, while things are new, the process of how new gets adopted and change happens, that process is not new. Mm-hmm. We humans will sometimes charge into a new arena without a whole lot of knowledge and and then try to figure out what to do about it afterwards. And I'm, I'm hoping that we're getting smart enough now to kind of have learned from some of those past situations. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think that there's, it, it, is, it is interesting to think about those big sticky problems. Yeah. Yeah, I think right now is, is one of the most interesting times to be a mechanical engineer. I think so. Especially since um, I know you, you you grew up in the like space race and all the uh, yeah that that must have been like incredible to see. You know, it really was. I mean, you know, Gorbachev was speaking daily, and and the the dynamics of when I was a a co-op student, you know, the the whole paying attention to world news and actually seeing the Cold War quote-unquote come to an end with the fall of the Berlin Wall um, has to, to look back in my lifetime and to say yeah I remember that mm. and to look back in my lifetime and say I remember not having a computer on my desk right so the technology that we have in play in this room right now with this um, conversation that we're having wasn't even at my fingertips mm. when I was in college yeah and so, now we're having um, the new newer space race with um the SpaceX and yes. a lot of Starlink and yep. I'm, I'm glad that we're finally moving towards um I know there's always like a sentiment of oh why, why waste money on space when we can have to fix problems here but I think that it's the both um are problems that will help each other in yeah, the future it's like I agree. It, it trickles down and I uh, agree and and, and any time that we're pushing a frontier um I always like the way NASA kind of called it they said they're spin-offs Right. Mm-hmm. So there's there's outcomes of having made an advancement in this frontier that without even understanding that it might make a difference somewhere else, it does. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I agree with you. The whole privatization of of the space endeavor, you know, that we're not necessarily as a nation putting as many resources towards NASA as I could wish. You know, if mm-hmm. they gave us a little multiple choice question on our every time we filed taxes, where would you like your taxes to go? <laughs> I would send all mine to NASA. Oh, yeah. um, and we just spend a fraction, right, on, on, on their budget. But yeah, I think it's good. I think there's, there's healthy competition that comes from having multiple groups working on a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I think they're uh, they're talking about putting a, a moon base eventually. Yeah. And I, I I've always thought that that was like the first step to having like multi- multiple uh, planet civilization mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. to just have like the proof of concept. Yep. Uh, having a, a permanent uh, base because that would yeah that'd be so cool. Yeah, it would. <laughs> even, it would. We would learn a lot, right? Yeah. You know. Um. And and of course, there's been people who have who have uh, advocated for learning how to live in a contained environment without it being on another surface right so in case something does go wrong right so we've we've had those kinds of experiments run on earth as well um i've always thought it would be really cool you know deep sea right Mm -hmm. you know where you're having to deal with uh high pressure situations which you know is the flip side of the vacuum Mm -hmm. um on the other side of your your wall but yeah i just i i think i think the next generation and the next generation they're going to have so much fun yeah yeah, there's gonna be a lot of stuff. I mean, even now, I remember. Have you seen the Dart uh, mission, uh, where they um, land, landed uh, something on an ast- moving asteroid? Yes. Yeah, that that was. Uh, yeah. And even James Webb, that was. Yep. Uh, just, uh, there's there's still so much happening. Like I'm I'm subscribed to like the the SpaceX and the yep. NASA yep. Uh, live stream. So I like, know you can like spend all day just keeping yeah. up with the the rate of change of what's yeah. going on. Yeah. It kind of. Um, it's exciting. It's a little overwhelming sometimes. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think that, you know, sometimes we have to, um, learn how to balance our intake of information with what we do with that information. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, At some point it's just becomes bogs you down and you you become a, yeah, not very uh, active. Yeah. I would say the thing that makes me happiest, um, still the thing that brings me a lot of joy and I, and I'm a big advocate for people figuring out what brings them joy? Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm assuming you having conversations like this mm-hmm. brings some joy to you. Um, but you know, for me, it's, it's learning how to use a new piece of equipment. It's getting it out of the box and figuring out, you know, what, what I need to do to program it. What do I need to do to make it perform the way I think it's going to, and then being able to teach somebody else to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think that's, that, that whole side of, of engineering and education for me has definitely um, kind of come together in, in this job that I have today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we're almost at an hour. So yeah. uh, I wanted to ask uh, one more question. Uh, okay. What, what was the most um, rewarding moment in your uh, teaching career? Oh, that's a beautiful question. Uh, you know, there's... Um, the, the moment the moment happens when someone comes and says, you know, I didn't understand this, but I've I've, I've worked through it. And I kind of I, I think I get what you're talking about, Dr. Pardue. You know, so I think it's that, you know, I call it the light bulb light bulb moment, for lack of a better phrase. And that sounds a little corny. But for me, that's when somebody else can say, I got it. Mm-hmm. Then that is that is knowledge that they have that they struggled for that they made their own. And to me, that is that is incredibly powerful. And it comes in many different forms. You know, I'll get a letter sometimes after somebody's graduated, letting me know, you know, that they are have got their dream job and they're really enjoying it. And they just want to let me know that um, maybe something that I helped them learn in one course kind of made sense to them. So it's 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 those moments, I think, that really kind of make it easy to get up and come to do this job. I mean, cause every job has, has things that you don't enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's those, I, I really think that that's it. Um, the, the light bulb moment. Yeah. 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 I, I still remember, you know, seeing a, a, a whiteboard just full of equations that yeah. uh, initially they just, it means nothing. It just a whole bunch of, you know, symbols. And then eventually you, you can break it down and you, you, it becomes ing- like, um, 
part of your subconscious that you don't yeah. even have to even think about. Like I remember looking at your um, fatigue in class, all yeah. the uh, different, um, uh, you know, all the different stress, factors stress, oh, we yeah. have to keep in mind, yeah. and all I of it comes together. And then, and then you look at it and you go, three pages later, I know what I'm doing. You yeah. know, right? Yeah, it just becomes second nature. Yeah, and, that, that, and it feels that, good, doesn't it? Yeah. Because it's yours. It's your knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think so. For me, it's that you know having. Having figured something out myself, how can I help other people figure it out? To mm-hmm. me, that is probably the most rewarding part of engineering yeah. education. Um, yeah. And it's just, yeah, uh, I, you know, I'm, I've, I'm blessed. I'm blessed to be in this job. Well, well, I appreciate you taking the time. I know yeah. you have a, what, what are you uh, teaching? Oh, in, uh, so here in just a few moments, in fact, yep, I'm going to be teaching a group of first-year students in mechanical engineering. We're learning programming in MATLAB. Oh, boy. And we're doing it by working with Arduino kits and mm-hmm. learning how to communicate and control them. Yeah. And that's the way we're learning our MATLAB programming. It's so much fun. Yeah, that's probably one of the hardest barriers is not having any programming like, uh, experience at all and then yeah. seeing how powerful MATLAB is and like using it in DMC is oh, it's actually very It's a whole universe unto itself, right? Yeah. All those beautiful toolboxes that we have access to. Yeah. Um, I was working with Will Gwynn, one of my um, students that uh, he's in master's degree and he's learning how to do um, modeling of uh, suspension systems mm. and, and we started exploring one of the toolboxes in MATLAB and it's, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. It's just really awesome. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well. All right. Well. Thanks, Doctor Fardu. I appreciate you taking the time. I, I appreciate talking with you, Charlie.